0: Good morning, Southbridge. I'm so glad that you're here. What a great time to be together today. If this is your first time here, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you've risked coming to a church at a movie theater. We hope that you enjoy our cup holders. Those have been provided for your refreshment. And uh, we just ask one thing of you this morning, and that's if this is your first time. If you take time to fill the connection card, which you can find inside your worship folder, we'd be grateful to hear, how did you hear about Southbridge? And you can take that with you to the first-time guest kiosk outside the theater where we have a gift for you just saying thanks for being here this morning. And if you've been coming to Salvage for a little while, or if this is your first time and you'd like to know more about the church, you can meet our lead pastor, Scott Lear, out under the blue tent after this service. He'll be glad to share with you the story of our church, a bit of himself, and also just what the vision of our church is. And our desire as a church is to make much of Jesus. I don't know if you've caught that already, but our desire is to connect people to Jesus for a life change. And each week when we come together, we subject ourselves to God's word as the authority in our lives. And so we've been doing that since the beginning of our church. And most recently, we concluded a a series called Movement, which was the study of the book of Acts. It took us 19 months, and uh, we made it through together, and the Spirit used it greatly in our lives to challenge and confront and encourage us. And for a short series now, we're just looking at Christ's teaching on prayer called Teach Us to Pray or Teach Me to Pray, and it's really looking at the Lord's Prayer. And so this morning, we're continuing that. In fact, last week was probably, it is, the best message I ever heard um, about the Lord's Prayer and the first part of it. In fact, you can listen to that online if you didn't catch it last week. And this morning, we're going to continue. And so what I'd like to do is, if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Matthew chapter 6. And just to give us the context again, we'll start in verse 5. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. I'll read for us. This is Jesus speaking, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by men. He's talking about the motive there, right? I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Now we know that Jesus himself prayed in public, so the idea here is about the motive, not necessarily the location, but about why people pray where they pray. More instruction here on prayer. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think it will be heard because of their many words. Remember last week we learned that there was just a style of prayer that was they used all the Lord's names they could come up with and put them in a row to try to conjure up God, as a, like a seance. And Jesus is saying that's not how it works. That's not what communication and a dialogue is with the Lord. You don't have to, please don't do it that way, he's saying. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And that was a a teaching right there that was kind of stumbling a bit because if we don't need to address, if God already knows what we need, then why do we talk to Him? And we came to realize that prayer is conversation with the Lord, it's really practicing the presence of the Lord, and it's calling us under Him. He is our Father, our Heavenly Father, and He knows what you need. In fact, the book of James says you don't have because you don't ask, but when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. And so we learned last week that prayer is really about this conversation, this dialogue with the Lord, not a monologue of a litany of things that we desire, like a wish list, like we're speaking to Santa or something. He's greater than that. And then Jesus continues on with his teaching. Look at this. This then is how you should pray. We looked at this last week. Our Father, look at the corporate nature of that. Our father in heaven, stop. So we know that this father is a heavenly father, and by this idea that he's accessible. Some of us group with the heritage that God is distant. In fact, open theism is that there's a God that exists. He cradled things and stepped back, and now you can't know him. Agnosticism is the idea that there could be a God, but you can't know him. It's not personal. Who's to know? But Jesus is saying on behalf of his father that this God is a God you can call father. Now, some of us had terrible fathers. Some of us had awesome dads. They both fall, of course, way, way short of this Heavenly Father who knows your needs, who knows your thoughts before you know them, who knows you intimately. Jesus says, We begin. And now this prayer is not a prayer to be recited like you have a script and that you're in a play and God plays his part and you play your part. The idea here is the principle of prayer. So it's not the script that's wrote, it's heartless. No, it's supposed to be from the heart and giving us principles. And so when we address prayer to the Lord, we're addressing a heavenly father, accessible, relational. And the next Jesus says, hallowed be your name. And we learned more about that last week, that God is completely separate, that his name is His holy and he is separate from us. He's not your homeboy, Jesus isn't your bro. He's completely separate, holy, just, full of love, grace and mercy and perfect in his wrath against that which is against him, his will and his sovereign plan. And so we have an accessible God who's also completely separate from us. The scriptures say that he's an unapproachable light. And so when we go to the father and we pray, we talk to him, that's who we're talking to and that's what we learned about last week. Jesus continues, and this is our focus this week. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Our Father, us, our, us, 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 we. Something collective here is happening. This week we're going to focus on just the next phrase, your kingdom come, and if the Lord wills it, next week we'll look at your will be done. So this morning, looking at your kingdom come, and before we get into the message, can we just go to the Lord together in prayer? Our Father, we recognize that you are the Lord, and we are not. And as we present ourselves before your word, Lord, God, I believe that everyone is here according to your purpose. And God, I just pray that each person here would be encouraged and challenged and equipped, that your spirit would confront us and that we would change where you want us to change. And What can I say about your kingdom? You're the king. So help me, I present myself before you and what you have said, what you want said, but then use your word as you promised to, to bring about life change. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. When we talk about God's kingdom, we're talking about something that is both known and unknown, that is here and not yet. So when you think of kingdom, if you close your eyes and thought about a kingdom, what do you think about? In preparation for the message, when I think about kingdom, I always, because I have five children, think about kings, queens, uh, castles, a moat out with some kind of creature inside it, a drawbridge, um, usually like some kind of king. And then there's peasants. There's always some disease they're facing, like bubonic plague or red scare or red death, black death, whatever. That's kingdom stuff to me. Peasants, serfs, bringing out their dead and all that. Yeah. But that's not what the scriptures have in mind. No. There's something very different, and this is very different than what Disney can imagine here, if you will, and that annoys me. The word translated English in kingdom, then, in the Greek, would be better suited if it was translated as to rule or reign. So we're saying your kingdom come, it's about your reign happen. And God's kingdom is wherever his reign and rule is. Hmm? Your reign reach here, we're saying. And where does God reign? Well, the scriptures tell us in the Old Testament, Psalm 103, verse 19, the scriptures say the Lord rules over all things. In first Chronicles chapter 20, we see that the Lord, you are you reign over all. In first Chronicles chapter 29, verse eleven, the scriptures read, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. That's the kingdom. As good students of the Bible, we'd ask, okay, there is a kingdom, and the scriptures seem to indicate there is a kingdom, and it's not really about a castle with a moat. It's this reigning, who's the king? The scriptures give us the answers. Jeremiah chapter 10 says, you are an everlasting king, O Lord. Psalm chapter 29, verse 10, the scriptures say that the Lord is enthroned as king forever. All the songs that we've sung up to this point just come from these scriptures. We're singing back to the Lord who he is. He is the king, and what he does, he reigns. In the New Testament, though, we see that Jesus Christ is king. Jesus is king, especially in the book of Matthew. Matthew, one of his motivations is to depict Christ as king. And so if you remember when Jesus is standing before Pilate, this is just before his crucifixion. Jesus' opponents have called for his crucifixion, and Pilate, who has been given this authority to make the shot call on Christ's death or life. They're having a dialogue together. It's recorded for us in the scriptures, amazingly. So Pilate says to Jesus, are you a king? And the implication is, what kind of king are you? Where's the kingdom, man? Where is your kingdom? See, he would have an understanding of when he's looking at Roman rule, where the palace is, where the kings that have been appointed under the Roman emperor are. And when he looks at Christ and he sees a few followers, What kind of kingdom is this? It's just another person thinking other stuff. And Jesus answers him, and we have it recorded for us, John chapter eighteen, verse thirty-six. Jesus said, "My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. That's how things work on earth. That's how kingdoms and kings, and soldiers work. But now my kingdom is from uh, another place." And Pilate must be thinking, "This guy's taking crazy pills. You are a king, then." So, you are a king. You, you're admitting it. Jesus answered, You are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Listen to this jab. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Hmm. Do you know what Pilate says next? What is truth? You didn't, I don't know if you thought that that was just a 2014 idea that how can we know truth and truth is relative. Two plus two equals four to you but two plus four equals five to me. We can just get along and agree about that. Jesus says, so this is the truth and everyone on the side of truth agrees with me. And Pilate's like, mm, I just want to do my job. So Jesus admits to being a king of a kingdom and so that means there's a reigning happening. So whose kingdom is it then? Is it the fathers or the sons? Yes is the answer to that. The Father's kingdom is no more distinct from Christ's. And Christ's words, then, are to distinguish the kingdom of God, your kingdom come, versus the kingdom of this world, or darkness, disorder, or the accuser. In fact, it was read this morning as we began into worship, this idea that we've been saved from a kingdom of darkness into this kingdom of the Son, S-O-N. So Jesus was the sent king, he said of himself. Jesus Christ as the Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one, or the one with the right to rule and to reign. He was the long hoped-for one by Israel, but people were thinking that the king would come, the hope-for one would come, and bring a castle with them, would overthrow the political rule. That'd be very political, and then everyone have their man finally in place. They did not expect the kind of kingdom that Christ was bringing into this world, into this secular space. So when we pray for His return and reign and rule here and now. We're saying your kingdom come. It is expressed then to the one who has the right to reign and to rule. The right because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In fact, Jesus says to Pilate, you're only in this position because the the father has given you such authority at this time. (laughs) No one conjures up the authority themselves. The Lord is operating his sovereign redemptive plan. And we'll look at that next week about God's will. So what does Jesus say about the kingdom? If Jesus is the king and pointing us toward the kingdom, what does Christ have to say about it? We should investigate that. And honestly, I thought about just the morning spending, just reading for our time, limited time that we have, everything that Jesus says about the kingdom, and we wouldn't have t- enough time. I was overwhelmed in preparation for the message about how much is said in God's word about God's kingdom and what Christ has to say and what he taught about the kingdom. So our, for our benefit this morning and our understanding, we're going to look at several scriptures. Usually at Southbridge, we're looking at one text, working through the text. We teach expositionally. Every once in a while, we teach topically. And this is kind of like a, a blend of that. So there's going to be a lot of scripture today. But I challenge you this week to investigate it for yourself. In fact, just Google, what did Jesus say about, the, about God's kingdom? And then get into your Bibles. investigate it yourself. It's your relationship with the Lord. I will not broker it for you, huh? So Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, mentioning the kingdom here, that this is why he was sent. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Now, what's the good news? Well, we would teach that the good news is that Christ came as God put on flesh, and then he took upon himself the punishment that was due to us, so that whoever believes in that work would not have to suffer the punishment for themselves for all time, because our sin is against God, not just one another. And God is eternal, so the punishment must be eternal. So that whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life, it would be have life or abundant life with him forevermore in this kingdom. That's what we'd say the good news is, yet when Jesus says that He's not died and rose again yet, so it's about the coming of the kingdom. It's about the kingdom coming in, and that you can know that, that this is relational, so that wherever God's reign and rule is, there's a relationship happening there. And Jesus is saying, this is the plan. In other words, the kingdom is the heart of His message. Why? Because it's God's plan? It's the point of all things, past, present, and future. So when will his kingdom come? That would be a good question to ask. And the scriptures tell us what Jesus said when he was asked that. Luke chapter 17, verse 20, shows us this exchange. Once having been asked by the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were people that knew the law, they knew the Old Testament well, they hid it in their hearts, and they had the self-discipline, self-control, and financial backing to be able to try to do their best, to get their way into the kingdom by being good boys. But they missed the point of the law. So this lawkeeper asked, when will the kingdom of God, when, it, when will it come? And Jesus replies, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. You don't see the castle being put, in together, put together by rocks and stones and the drawbridge being assembled. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is within you. Now this teaching would have been quite offensive. How can it be with, within people when God is so separate? When you can barely even know this God, he's holy. How could it be in our midst when we are just people? We're we're looking for someone to come and overthrow Rome. What are you talking about? Then he said to his disciples then, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, which is a reference to himself, a nickname he gave himself, but you won't see it. Men will tell you there he is or here he is, like people saying there's the Messiah, and this happens today. In fact, I even saw this past week someone say that they're the second coming of Christ, um, sunglasses on and a nice tie and handshaking everybody, and people were following he also said that this, the accuser is not real, Satan's not real, that the, the kingdom is him and that um, he needs your money. So it's awkward because I didn't know that God needed it so badly. <laughs> the economy's been bad. So men will tell you, there he is or here he is, but do don't, don't go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day, the day of his return, will be like lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and that's what we see through his the crucifixion and the suffering that he experienced. Jesus was known as a man of sorrows and he's the king and be rejected by this generation and many generations reject him, of course. So Jesus says that the kingdom is in the midst of them, but it will not be seen like an arriving fortress being built up and a moat out. So the kingdom is both arrived and is within and still yet to come. So when we say your kingdom come, the request means immediately, suddenly, Lord, please bring your rule, your reign here now. The implication then is that Christians are to concern themselves with what God is doing in his redemptive plan. We are to pray for his reign to be present in our midst. Lord, start with with me. When we pray your kingdom come, we are calling for God to fulfill his own plan immediately and that's what makes this request your kingdom come and next week's focus if the lord wills it your will be done so difficult because we're mostly concerned with our kingdom our reign our rule our will it reminds me of the phrase hearing growing up hearing this um watch your mouth we better be careful what we're praying about because we're saying your kingdom come but do we mean that See, most of us, when we engage prayer, and I've had a lot of experience in this, really what I'm doing is I'm putting my coins and a prayer into the slot and pulling the arm, hoping that I get what I want, hoping I get the jackpot, huh? And then I can advance my kingdom. And my kingdom is really a kingdom of, of, I have two, um, feel comfortable and for the glory of Christ. Now, I've had other ones, and we'll get to that later. What are yours that are competing? This is something that's difficult to pray, if we think about the implications and we think about what we're actually saying, think about your prayer life right now, if you will. Is it one that's concerned with the kingdom being exalted and God's name being hallowed? Or are we concerned with our kingdom being exalted and our name being made great, that the renown of ourselves would be made known? Hmm. So the kingdom is going to come, it's already here, it's about the past, the present, and the future. So what does it look like when the kingdom invades this secular space? How does the kingdom arrive? And if you're a note taker, this is probably a part where you can do some of this. God's kingdom is invading this space, starting in our hearts, then cultivating us into proper kingdom inhabitants, if you will, and then concluding with his return. So number one, how does the kingdom arrive? The kingdom comes in salvation and submission. Look at Mark chapter 1 verse 15. The kingdom comes in salvation and submission. The time has come, Jesus says, The kingdom of God, so we'll look at lots of kingdom statements by Christ today. The kingdom of God is near, but he says it's arrived and it's repent and believe the good news. How is it possible that Jesus would call people for repentance when he's such a nice guy? Why would Jesus ever tell somebody to change, you know? Hmm? Repentance is a changing, It's it's a turning. So how does the kingdom come? How does the kingdom arrive? Well, it partly comes through in salvation and submission, When someone then repents and does exactly what Jesus just said about the kingdom, repentance is a turning, a turning from our sin and then turning to the king by faith. It's the beginning of kingdom living. When someone gives his or her life to Christ to follow him, that's the kingdom breaking into a troubled world. And this world has trouble, doesn't it? And all of us have suffered in our own ways. And who's to measure one suffering against another? Your suffering is your suffering In this life, you're going to have trouble. But take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Do you have Christ? Are you doing it alone? In chapter 10 of Romans, verses 9 through 13, we see more about this idea of salvation and submission in relationship to the kingdom coming. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're going to be saved. Now, this idea of Lord is the idea of king. It's the same understanding You're confessing that Christ is the king and you're not the king. You're not running the show. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. They might be put to death. And we're seeing that on the news. They won't be put to shame as they stand before the Lord. So we see that salvation comes to those that confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord. So to, so to say your kingdom come is to pray that he may take up his reigning residence in our lives, but also then in the hearts and lives who have yet to yield their life to Christ. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the staff at Salt Bridge and many of the members of Salt Bridge, we pray for everyone that will, we don't know everyone by name that will be here every Sunday and the guests that will come, but we pray that God would Do life change, and life change happens from someone that's been against God or opposite God and turns toward him. We're not interested in moral reforms or behavior modification, just be like us. No, become like Christ as you yield then to the king. Jesus illustrates this idea of accepting an invitation to be in a relationship with him with a story about the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a king putting on a big wedding party, a big wedding feast for his son. And the king sends out all these invitations to the guests to come and they can take the invitation to attend or they can reject it. And what happens within the story is that some reject it. So the king sends his servants out into the community, highways and byways, into the alleys and find anyone you can that wants to come to the party. And so then some do. In other words, there's an invitation here. My kingdom is here, Jesus is saying, and I want you to be a part of it. But there's a problem here. And it's demonstrated even in my own home. I have five children. I'm blessed with five children. Blessed is the appropriate word to use, and I have to remind myself of that. Five children. And we experience a problem with this idea because what we have is we have a problem when we're celebrating a birthday, a party, and everyone's invited. The table's ready. The food is ready. The cake is ready. Presents are ready. We've picked out all the song. Ready? It's one. We sing happy birthday. I don't know what you guys sing. That's what we sing. And... uh Everyone's invited, but not everyone's happy at the party. Um, I have a, I was going to show you, and I could just hold my phone up like this. But I have put it on Facebook again this morning. Recently, we had a party, and they happen often with the five. And for them, it's not their party. And when it's time for presents, it's not during the song, and it's not during cake time. Everyone's happy with that. It's present time, where I have a, a video of my youngest, Titus, who's three and a half, sitting in mommy's lap. as she's helping our former youngest, Ethan, open a present. And Titus is doing this. <laughs> And I'm filming him because I think his crying is really sweet, which makes me kind of sadistic, I guess, but it's awesome. <laughs> and I said, it's, I said, Are you having a hard time today? It's not your birthday. Birthdays when it's not your day is hard, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. He knows everything. He knows it's time to sing Badu birthday to you. <laughs> Blows out candles and he's ready for the present, but it's not about him. The party's not about him. But he's invited to be a part of it. He's invited to enjoy all the parts of it. But the problem for him is that the focus isn't on him. But guess what? Little ones grow up to be adults that are the same. And so when it comes to a party like this, where the party is about the king's son, which is actually Jesus, who's the king, by the way, we're invited to be a part of it. Do you want to be a part of it? Well, not if the party, not about me because I really like me. So there's an impasse here for some of us. And it comes at this first point when the kingdom breaks in, it breaks through at salvation and you're invited to be a part of it. You simply grab it and take it. But some of us say no because we think that maybe we'll be proved that we're dumb or faith is stupid or there's just trouble. Really what it is is we want to call the shots. And why would I subject myself to the king and can I trust this king? Do you want to be part of it? One person asked, how can I be a part of this party? How can I be a part of this kingdom? And Jesus has this exchange with a really smart person. It actually was an honest conversation where someone was really inquiring of the Lord. It's found in John chapter 3, starting in verse 3. And Jesus is having this exchange with a man named Nicodemus. So in reply, Jesus declared when someone asked about being a part of this kingdom, being a part of that party, I tell you the truth that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And that phrase was really brand new. Maybe you've heard this phrase before in reference. And it was really popular in the 60s and 70s. A lot of Christians don't share it much anymore, but Jesus was the one that came up with it. So Jesus is having this exchange about this idea of being born again. And so the humble man asks, how can a man be born when he's old It's so youthful? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb be born. No, no. Let me explain, Jesus says. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, that no one can enter the kingdom of God, so more kingdom language, unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. So now we're talking about like a spiritual rebirth. So when someone says they're born again, they they were born into this world physically, but they were spiritually dead. And now that since they placed their faith in Christ by God's grace, who called to them with the invitation and they accepted it, they've now been made alive, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 52, are found multiple parables taught by Jesus about the kingdom of God. And Jesus says that the kingdom is like a treasure, and it's like this priceless pearl, and people are running to grab a hold of this because it's so valuable. In order to receive the kingdom by faith, and we take hold of it. The kingdom then enters into this world in our own lives as we submit, as we surrender, and that salvation comes upon us. We're brought into the family of God. That's why we call him Father through our adoption by the work of Jesus Christ. So we call him Father, but we also call him King, and we're an inhabitant of his kingdom through salvation, submission. So simply being moral or a nice person won't do it. Because Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, really, really... Dedicated people to the law. You'll never enter the kingdom. More kingdom talk from Jesus. So how can I be better than them? Jesus is expecting perfect righteousness. Who can get in? Only Christ is the one who's righteous. So he gives his life so that we can call on him and say, I count on Christ's righteousness for myself. God, will you have me? Will you have me to the party? And it's by receiving the invitation through faith, through repentance and confession and then surrendering to the king that we find this idea of the kingdom invading this place. So in one sense, then, the kingdom comes by salvation and submission. When I pray, your kingdom come, I'm relinquishing the rule of my own life to the king and then asking that he start his kingdom arrival with me. But there's more, and that would be enough. (laughs) But there's more. Another way that the kingdom arrives, the kingdom comes in sanctification. Sanctification is the process whereby God's spirit is causing us to become like Christ, to act and imitate him, to behave like him. And we see that the kingdom is happening through sanctification. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, we read that we are first to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Have you heard this verse before? It's right after this idea about don't worry about what to wear, don't worry about what to eat, and I worry often about what to eat. I'm really good at it. I could probably go pro, Probably. I'm thinking about skipping college and going right to, right pro. Jesus says, don't worry about that stuff. First. Even those, are, those are your daily concerns. Be mostly concerned with his kingdom and his righteousness. And all the necessities will be given to you as God sees fit. As he sees fit. In doing that, what we're saying is your kingdom is my cause. It isn't my cause that matters anymore. And this is what it takes for the, that's, that's what, believers can say that's what adopted children of christ can now say it's your kingdom is my cause so think about your life for a moment what have been your kingdom's causes if i if i go chronologically i can think back through there was a time um, that my kingdom's cause was having the best baseball card collection but there was always someone that had one better so i had to steal from my friends to try to get i stole from the grocery store to try to get it because i was worried about my kingdom because i don't want my friends to think i had a great collection Pretty dim view. Another kingdom's cause for youth is that they'd have the best video game stuff. But the video game people are really smart because they keep making new ones. And the parents who are trying to make their kids happy, because sometimes the parents, their kingdom is simply their kids. Their kids' happiness will then try to get more. Growing up, even more so, I wanted to be liked, so whatever it takes to be liked. Um, I tried to start being funny in middle school, and teachers... Didn't think it wasn't much funny and just wanted to be liked and sports. I wanted to be a professional athlete and I've been this tall since seventh grade. So basketball has been out for a while. I know Spud Beb was five, seven, whatever. And then I started getting into more into the church world. And this is where it gets messy because I was doing good boy church things that no one could correct. But the motive was that so that people would be happy with me, chiefly the Lord. But I didn't know that God loves me regardless of my behavior. Now those that love him obey him, Jesus says. But God loves everyone, but not everyone's in relationship with him because they're saying no to him. But I didn't have anyone to correct me that Jason, your motive is that simply that you're trying to get God to love you. So my kingdom still at that time was my kingdom come. My kingdom's missions were for me. And what happens in sanctification is that those start getting pulled away. The two missions of the feeling good kingdom Versus the kingdom of the Lord, this one starts to dissipate. There's no competing kingdoms anymore. That's what's happening for the life of the believer. At God's pace, though, we wish that God would grow people faster. Be gentle with us, Lord, but can you get my spouse to act right? (laughs) They got problems, and I don't. Sanctification is a process by which we're becoming more like Christ, and that is an evidence of the kingdom breaking through. Hmm? The shedding of our cause for God's cause is part of growing spiritually from newborn to mature, or mature, however you say it. This is a battle then for us for sure, isn't it? It's a battle, it's always a battle within us. It's yielding to the Lord's plan as expressed in his word but God is faithful to sanctify us at his pace. So the kingdom arrives little by little in our spiritual growth or our formation, if you will. And we begin now to live like kingdom inhabitants. And isn't it true that you act like where you're from? So I was born in Michigan where we'd say things like, don't forget your backpack. (laughs) But then I went to college in Ohio where we exchanged the word pop for Coke to soda. And I was there for four years. So now I say, so who says soda here? Who says pop? Fizzy lifting drink? No one. But, but I married a gal from Pennsylvania Reading, Pennsylvania Which they say words like tournament in orange Huh? It's tournament in orange Watch out for the macadam You mean blacktop? Because I don't know what you're talking about hmm? But then we moved to Greenville, South Carolina For three years And then North Carolina now for the last eight years And I don't say you guys anymore I say y'all you act like where you're from. I went on a mission trip to um, Jamaica for 31 days with my wife and some teenagers, and I began saying manala and yeah, man, and I would say it, we got back to the States and say like to even older women. Yeah, man. I mean, yes, ma'am. I don't know. <laughs> you have inside jokes with your people and your family and your dearest friends. You've got those kind of connections, and so you act like who you're hanging around with, and you act like where you're from. And what's happening in sanctification is that you start acting like, you start seeming a little like Jesus. You're not perfect. And no one, if anyone tells you that church is about being a perfect people, Christ is perfect, and he's molding us into his image. But until we're in with him and his kingdom, it's going to be a work, and we're going to be messy, and it's going to be messy, and church is going to be messy. Because there's people, and you're a part of it. But sanctification is an evidence of God's kingdom invading this secular space. So we have to ask ourselves, do I sound like Christ? Do I behave like Christ? If not, why? You could ask yourself this week, what's in the way of my spiritual maturing? In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, we get a glimpse of what kingdom life is like. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, we read, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. The context was people debating about what's allowed to eat. There was a lot of issues about if meat was sacrificed to idols, is it okay to eat that? And Does that mean you're complicit in that kind of worship? And it was hard for really difficult issue for folks then. But the kingdom of God is about righteousness and it's about peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, peace, real peace and joy come as a byproduct of hanging out with God because it's his character. It can only be brought about as we yield to the Spirit. We can partner with him, whereby he cultivates peace. You can't drum it up yourself. Same as love. Love comes from the spirit. God is love. What we mean by love on this planet is this. I like what you do for me, or it's a contract, if you, then I. But what love means according to the scriptures is I yield to your best interest. And God demonstrated that love toward us. And that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. He yielded to our best interest that we could have a relationship with him. And so when the spirit's in your life sanctifying you, that's real love. That's how forgiveness comes from that kind of love. How can you forgive that terrible thing? Answer, oh, because of Jesus. Peace and joy. So true peace, which comes from trusting in the truth in any circumstance, and true joy, which comes from a firm contentment in what God has provided in Jesus Christ, regardless of daily circumstances, are examples of God's character being cultivated in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. These character traits can only come from God's spirit as we yield ourselves to God's work in our lives, yielding to his reign. That's his kingdom. That's the word. And then obeying him by faith. Obedience does matter to the Lord. He doesn't think our disobedience is cute. So it's in this sense then that it's therefore true when Jesus said, as found in Luke chapter 17, verse 20, for indeed the kingdom of God is found within you as you're becoming more like Christ, which has to happen first by submitting to him in salvation. The kingdom of God's found with you. That looks, you look kind of king, like the king a little bit. You sound like him now. What's going on with you? So we could pray something like this. Father, allow your kingdom to be seen through my life. Help my life to look like what it looks like in your kingdom. Replace my depression with joy. Exchange my anxiety with your peace. Change my anger to your kind of patience. Have you ever heard a parent say this to their child? You're making me so angry. No, you're in charge of your emotions. You're angry for something with you because you want your child to act big. A child doesn't make a parent angry. That comes from within. And what God does with that is he exchanges that anger for patience. I'm trying to manage my anger. No, I don't want anger at all. I want patience. Hmm. Start choosing the longest line at the grocery store to work on such things. (laughs) And talk to the Lord the whole time and love it. You're going to get home, probably. It's okay, you can wait. Hmm? Father, please create a victory for your kingdom where there used to be none. I used to look to try to take things from people. I used to try to claim images that don't belong to me. And I want to look to you. And I don't want to look like your son. Hmm? Replace my lust with gratitude. Where I used to make life about what I get, what I achieve in my daily necessities, I now make about you. That's sanctification. That's life change in the believer's life. But there's one more. There's more. And that would be enough, wouldn't it? But there's more. Number three, the kingdom comes in Christ's second coming. Okay? And this is probably what we have most in mind when we pray, your kingdom come. Jesus said to his disciples at the last supper, from now on I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the the kingdom of God comes. The coming of the kingdom is not then only a present spiritual experience, but also then a future historical event. And many people try to predict it. You might read in the news... And this kind of gives a bad name for believers, but like people projecting and this is the date and all this stuff, they don't know. Only the Father knows, the Bible says. But we know that it's coming because Jesus said it. In fact, he says it a few times in Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, verse 43, we can read about that. Matthew 13. For the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. It sounds very different than the kind of image that we have about Christ being meek and mild. But it's Jesus talking about himself. So I'd be a bad pastor if I'd, we kept these kingdom talks, this part of it, away, wouldn't I? They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't believe that, you might say. And how could I say this? I believe that Jesus, is the way, the truth, and life, I believe that Jesus came and that he loves all people, but all that stuff he says about like judgment and then separating, I don't believe that. How could I believe one and not the other if I say that Christ said it. that's For me, that's what I've been convinced, that Jesus meant what he said for me. The next scripture, we see this in Matthew chapter 25. It's like the same kind of, same kind of teaching. Can we go to the, chapter 25? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. He's the king. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another like a shepherd does between like sheep and goats. So when you hear that passage, what does that conjure up in you? See, this is talking about a kingdom to come. The one that's going to happen, but it's it's an event. And all of history is going to culminate to that place. And the Bible talks about it over and over and over again. The kingdom is breaking in under Christ's ministry. That's true. But when we pray your kingdom come, we're also asking God then to draw history to a close and establish his eternal kingdom. So that means that there is coming a day when all is renewed. Heaven is on earth for all eternity. Psalm chapter 145 verse 13 reads that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And that is true. Old and New Testament point toward this forever kingdom. And I grew up with a heritage that people talked about the Christ coming, it could come at any moment, and I believe that's called his eminencies. his return is eminent. A lot of times in Christian circles, kids would have a low view of Christ's kingdom coming and a high view, let's say, of marriage, probably of sex, when they'd say, God, come, but don't come until after I get married. Because the kind of group I grew up with would save, like, sex till marriage. So they had a real high view of sex, I guess, and a pretty low view of the castle of God. But we say, Lord, we want you to come. We want you to eradicate the evil. We want you to take care of all this. But we want more people to come to know you too. Would you have more people come to know you in salvation? But also then allow your kingdom to come immediately. It would be more than I could bear if my children didn't know you. In the book of Revelation, we read that Jesus is coming again. So Old and New Testament. The apostle John writes of this vision that he received from the Lord about the things of the end. And it's really hard to decipher. And some people act like they know every part of it. And the locusts equal helicopters and all this stuff. No, there's mystery still. Okay. But then he says at the end of this, like saying, your kingdom come. He says, even so, Lord Jesus, come just like saying your kingdom come. We're praying that not only that his reign would arrive in our hearts and our lives of the people that don't know him and praying that we'd become more like him through sanctification for those of us that have been adopted into his family by his grace through faith. But we we're praying as well then that soon, immediately, quickly, please come back and break the tyranny of sin. Make this world right. And I believe it's going to happen because that's what God's word promises. And I've, I've put my hope in what has been said about what Christ said. That's my testimony. So this should elicit one of two responses, shouldn't it? If I say that Jesus is coming and if he's coming tomorrow, it should make you respond in one of two ways. Either fear, probably, or joy. Which is it for you? Did anyone ever go up with this experience? If I was um, wrestling with my brother and mistreating him or just rabble-rousing, um, rough-housing in the neighborhood, um, gallivanting, if you will. I remember my mom saying phrases like this. Did you ever catch this? Wait till you're now how did you know? And when you were told that, was it like it's gonna be awesome when he comes home? But if we put it in the right context, what if it was birthday party time, mom has gifts ready? Wait till your father comes home so we can open up these presents. It's a different response, isn't it? Because I want those presents. I really like getting presents, guys. <laughs> if I say Jesus is coming, wait till Christ comes, it's gonna be incredible. Does that cause fear for you or joy? What is your response to the arrival of the king? And we already alluded to this, and I'll wrap up the message with just this section here. But the important question again is, who will be a part of his kingdom? And lots of people have a say on this, but let's have the scriptures then tell us, okay? Is it that the good people go to heaven view? The Bible doesn't say that, because no one is good enough. In Mark chapter 12, verse 34, after a scribe told Jesus that God is one God, and that loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself is greater than all the commandments and all the sacrifices you could ever have in the temple, Jesus says back to him, Hey, you're not far from the kingdom. But not far is also not in. Hmm? So you can have an understanding and a knowledge. You could get an A in a Bible test today after this message about the kingdom. But it doesn't mean that you've got an active relationship with Christ whereby you've submitted to him as your king. And even though you stumble and fall, he's sanctifying you at his pace. You're not perfect and no one believes that you're going to be on this side of heaven. And you're anxiously awaiting for his arrival. There's a difference between knowing about those things and being engaged with those things, right? Right? The reign and rule of Christ is not established in your heart until you grab hold tightly by faith to him. That's who's in a kingdom inhabitant. And that sounds rough, doesn't it? It sounds um, too singular. But Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one gets to the Father except through him. So it's Christ who said it. It's not trying to be an exclusive club for those that are do-gooders. It's an invitation to all who will accept it. And have you received it? And are you seeing the sanctification continuing to advance? And are you longing for his return, his kingly reign in this place? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus gives a really tough teaching that causes fear for lots of people. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, hey, king, king, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. It's really similar to like this prayer. Next week we look at that. Your will be done. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, hey, King, King, didn't we do churchy stuff in your name? Didn't we prophesy and tell people about you in your name and in your name do miracles even? Amazing things and wonders, drive out demons. And Jesus tells them plainly, I never knew you. That was either for your kingdom's cause or it wasn't about me, for me as the king. It was something with you. Away from me you evildoers. Who will be part of his kingdom? In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 through 10, we read that the kingdom will be comprised of ransomed people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. But it's going to be people that have yielded to the king. Does that include you? That's what our longing is for as a church for this city of Raleigh, that Christ would be the king of this city. Will you pray with me? Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for each person that's here. Thank you for your grace and mercy toward us. Thank you for your justice. Thank you for allowing us to walk into your throne room and speak to you. Lord, thank you for the miracle of bringing someone who is spiritually dead to spiritually alive and then growing them into the image of your son. And Lord, thank you for your promise of your son's return and Lord, we just trust in you as a church family. Lord, I pray for those that have yet to yield their lives to you, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would acknowledge that they've been doing their own thing, that they acknowledge that they have been a sinner against you in the sense that they've been rejecting you, and that they would turn to you as king by believing in Christ's death and resurrection and then walk with you as you guide and lead. Lord, I pray for our church community, God, that we would truly be unified. I pray for all the believers in the city of Raleigh, wherever church communities that are a part of, God, that they would be quick to extend the gospel, hand out party invitations to people so they could be with you when your kingdom comes. Lord, we're desperate for our city, for this world. God, would you come quickly? Even so, Lord Jesus, please come. We pray these things in Jesus' name.